This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Big day for Airbnb and certainly Brian Chesky and his team. Big day for a COVID-19 vaccine in the U.S. We've got the FDA. They've got their advisory panel gathering today. They're going to consider issues, including the safety of the shot from Pfizer and BioNTech. Uh, They're looking at that messenger RNA technology. It's never been used before in human vaccines. So this is what they are digging down into big time. It hasn't. But, you know, I think this technology, what we've learned is is sort of coming at this from a new angle. Now, never thought I'd be talking about vaccine technology, right? Yeah. Even though it hasn't been used in humans, it has been being researched for for years at this point. So they're not coming to it completely and, you know, completely blind. Which is a really good point, right? The development and the work on it has been been long in coming. Let's see what our next guest has to say. Um, Dr. Chris Beyer, he is professor of epidemiology and public health and human rights at Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health. He is on the phone from Baltimore, the Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Dr. Beyer, I think, am I saying it correctly? Byra. Uh, it's Byra. Byra, forgive yeah. me. Um, I knew when I said it, it wasn't correct. So what are, you, what are you expecting, anticipating, hoping to hear from this FDA advisory panel and the news later on today? Well, I think, uh, I think most of us in the field uh, believe that the FDA uh, will, first of all, that the committee will make a recommendation to the FDA for an emergency use authorization for the Pfizer candidate. Based on the efficacy data, which is, uh, as your listeners probably know, uh, over 90 percent, 95 percent actually, and on the safety profile, Um, and that the FDA will then uh, very likely issue an emergency use authorization in the coming days, uh, and that we could uh, start uh, use of this vaccine perhaps uh, as early as early next week. Well, it can't come soon enough. I mean, Carol and I were talking about how New York City is is close to where we were earlier this year, the idea of hitting a COVID record just after months of of controlling cases here. When do we start to see these numbers go down, doctor, after the vaccine is rolled out? Certainly, we've talked about the challenges in rolling out that vaccine, but but when will we start to see numbers go down? Well, I think what we're going to have at the beginning, unfortunately, is that the numbers are going to continue to rise. We're expecting that spike from the Thanksgiving holidays. We're expecting more Uh, transmission over the coming holiday season. And we're going to have a period for several months where where we're going to have vaccine scarcity, even if this vaccine is approved uh, for emergency use and the Moderna vaccine, which is going to have its hearing next week, even if both are approved by the new year, we're thinking probably about 40 million doses available, and that would be enough to immunize 20 million people. Remember, we have more than 23 million healthcare workers alone in this country. So there's going to be a period of scarcity and a period of rising rates of infection. We're thinking that that probably uh, by the first quarter of the year, the vaccines will start to be more available. There are other vaccine candidates in the pipeline that also are being evaluated, AstraZeneca, uh, Johnson & Johnson, and two more trials that are going to start this month. 
but it's probably going to be June or July before we have enough vaccine for everyone in this country who wants it. So I kind of feel like, um, Dr. Byer, that it's really important that we set expectations for public, mm-hmm. the public and, and, and U.S. citizens. So I heard someone say to me, you know what, we're not going to get back to life probably until next September, because for families who have kids, it's still going to be a difficult summer um, as the vaccine continues to roll out. How do you see it? What's the timeline that you think is realistic when we can all start thinking about really kind of reentry here? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a very important question. First of all, you have to remember that we have not yet assessed uh, any of these candidates in children under 12. Uh, so Pfizer did uh, add 12 to uh, 18-year-olds in its trial, but have only asked for approval for 16 and up. So we still have to do the studies uh, in kids, uh, and that's going to take some time. It's also true that we need to do those studies in pregnant women to be sure that it's safe and effective for them. I think, you know, when we have enough vaccine available for all adults, which, as I said, we're thinking will be midsummer of yeah. 2021, we we'll still have the question of, of how many people have been willing to get immunized and how well the immunization programs have, go- uh, have gone. Uh, and we have one other big question, which is we don't know right now with either of these messenger RNA vaccines uh, if they uh, can prevent transmission. These right. trials are all studies of clinical outcomes. So we, we're very optimistic about how well they've performed to prevent disease, but we don't know if they interrupt transmission. So for now, we're all still going to have to wear masks. Uh, doctor, very briefly to that point on on kids who are 12 and under, what's the timeline for, yeah. for those studies? And, and when can we expect results from that? And we only have about 15 seconds left. Yeah, well, we'll need to have the emergency use authorization in adults uh, before those trials can start in children. The expectation is they'll be much smaller, about 3,000 kids, and they probably will start uh, in the first quarter of 2021. Dr. Byer, I have like a million questions. First of all, would you take the vaccine and right now, and are there differences between what we're getting from Moderna, what we're getting from Pfizer, what we're getting from AstraZeneca? What are the differences that we need to understand? Well, Carol, to your first question, uh, as soon as the emergency use authorization is through, uh, I will be very eager to get this vaccine. Um, uh, and uh, I think I, that, that view is shared by virtually all my colleagues uh, in healthcare at Hopkins. The differences between uh, the vaccines, uh, there are some minor differences between uh, the Pfizer candidate and the Moderna candidate, but they're basically uh, the same messenger RNA technology. They're aimed at the same uh, spike protein of the the coronavirus, uh, and they had remarkably similar efficacy and safety. Uh, The the Moderna product, of course, will be looked at next week by uh, the same advisory committee. Uh, The AstraZeneca uh, trial, uh, the candidate looks a little bit different. The efficacy, uh, at least as far as we've seen so far, seems to be more in the 70 percent range. But that trial is ongoing and we need to finish it. Uh, We need to continue uh, to look for both the the safety and the efficacy. And it is enrolling extremely well. There are 800 Americans, 700 to 800 people volunteering a day for that trial. Wow. Wow. what does this do for just vaccine technology? Because as, as we've read and as we've learned, the mRNA technology hasn't been used in human vaccines before, but this research has been happening for years. Does the science that's been learned 
throughout the last 10 months, does that, does that set the medical community up to succeed in other areas? It absolutely does, Tim, and it's not just vaccines. Uh, this technology could be used potentially in a number of other uh, disease areas, including in, in cancer therapy. And, and uh, you're right that the research has been going on for a while. If either of these products ends up going to licensure, this would be the first, or whichever one or both, would be the first licensed vaccines using messenger RNA technology. What does that mean? License. What does that mean? Licensed technology. Well, so the so far there is no licensed vaccine based on uh, messenger RNA. Uh, the emergency use authorization is different from full approval and licensure, right? It, the emergency use authorization allows us to go ahead and start immunizing in a public health emergency with only two months of safety data. Uh, these trials are going to go on actually for a full two years. We're going to learn a lot more about safety as we accrue uh, data over time. Uh, and all of that will go into whether or not it finally is licensed and approved for use in the United States. Um, and, you know, that that is um, a step beyond the emergency use authorization. The critical thing about messenger RNA is that there have been some technological advances when we were working on vaccines for other diseases. And the most important one is that uh, it turns out that messenger RNA is easily broken down by the body. And so the technology couldn't advance for a number of years until basically the development of, of being able to wrap these RNA particles in a fat layer. It's what's called a lipid nanoparticle. So it's a nanoparticle technology, and that allows uh, the messenger RNA to get into our cells and for them to then manufacture uh, the antigen and for the immune system to recognize it. So that was a breakthrough from several years ago, but it's now really reaping benefits for us, and that will have uh, applications for many other diseases and vaccines. That's pretty cool. Hey, well, I want to ask yeah. you, though, so the FDA panel that we're anticipating, we're going to get some news by the end of the day on the Pfizer mm -hmm. drug, that, again, is for the emergency authorization, correct? That's right. Okay. And then, and then will the FDA continue to go for the full licensed authorization or licensed and usage authorization? Well, uh, that would be the sponsor, Pfizer, who would be pressing okay. for uh, full licensure, and uh, we have every expectation that they would. Uh, the, the FDA also set out in the publicly available document that mm -hmm. they released in advance of the hearing uh, what the requirements are for an emergency use authorization. Um, and, you know, everybody reading that, I think, reasonably would say, yes, we meet, uh, we definitely meet that criteria. Because, of course, we are really in a national and global public health emergency. I just go back to the idea of we're t here we are talking about this technology, this great technology. We're days away from mm -hmm. it being deployed. But at the same time, we're still, you know, eight to ten months away from us right. actually getting the vaccine. Right. And when I say us, I just, you know, mean the collective us, right? We're all at different points in our lives and, and some are further ahead in line than, than others. How does the U.S. pull this off? Yeah, it's a very important question, Tim. So basically there have been a number of frameworks put forward for allocation and for figuring out how to prioritize use of these candidates when we have scarcity. Um, and uh, the advisory committee to the CDC laid this out as well. 
But the way the administration has handled it is basically to ask each of the states to put forward their own plans. So we don't have a national allocation scheme right now. We have 50 state schemes in the District of Columbia. Um, And so the governors uh, and the states and the state health departments are going to have a big role to play in how these doses get allocated. Our governor in Maryland is doing a hearing today on that very issue. Uh, everybody pretty much is in agreement that the highest priority are healthcare workers who have direct exposure to patients and who are caring for COVID patients right. uh, because of their very high exposure. Then the, the next highest priority or very similar is people in long-term care facilities and the staff of those facilities. Dr. Byra, I want to ask you, do you anticipate anything uh, might change in terms of the logistics and rollout come Uh, the Biden administration taking over in January? Or do you feel like the process will be well entrenched at that point? Well, I think they're going to come in at a time where we'll have increasing availability of doses, uh, but the operational challenges and the distribution challenges are going to be major. There's no question about that. Pfizer has to be stored uh, and shipped at super cold temperatures, uh, minus 80 probably going to have to be shipped on dry ice. Moderna is a little easier to handle, uh, but the vaccines ahead, AstraZeneca and some of the protein vaccines, uh, some of them will be able to be stored at room temperature and be much easier to distribute. So uh, if we're lucky and those vaccines are also safe and effective, that will change the landscape in the first 100 days of the Biden administration. All right, we're going to leave it on that note. You covered so much important ground for us. Thank you so much, Dr. Chris Byer. He is professor of epidemiology, public health, and human rights at Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health with us from Baltimore. And again, just a reminder, the Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. Here with Carol Masser along with Tim Stenovic of Bloomberg Quick Take. And I know you guys caught up on Quick Take. You've been talking a lot about Facebook, right? The news yesterday. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, the question is, is, is this like going to be the biggest regulatory action that we've seen right. in decades? And will it have real results for Facebook? Yeah. And it's, a, it's as much an antitrust story as it is definitely a company story. So let's get into this. Uh, and what is the future of Facebook on the heels of the news of that U.S. antitrust? lawsuit that could look to break up or is seeking to break up that company. Bloomberg Tech reporter Kurt Wagner, we talked with him yesterday. We need to do some more. He's joining us on the phone in San Francisco. So Kurt, good to have you here with Tim and myself. Uh, Your story is so smart and you really break it down in terms of why Facebook needs WhatsApp, why it needs Instagram. So talk to us about if we're an investor in Facebook, how we need to think about how a breakup could potentially impact this company. Yeah, well, I think the very, very short version is that both of these services really represent a huge part of Facebook's future and a huge part, if you're a Facebook investor, of why you might invest in this company and why you would look, you know, three, five, even ten years down the road. Uh, The story that you mentioned, we we brought up a couple different things. I'll highlight just a few of them. Um, The first being revenue growth. I mean, when you look at where Facebook is getting its new revenue each year, almost all of that is coming from Instagram. And if you take Instagram out of the mix, suddenly you're looking at a social network that has really kind of tapped a lot of the markets that are valuable out there and isn't growing quite as much. And the second part is commerce. You know, Facebook has talked a lot about building shopping features into its products, uh, kind of diversifying business that way. I find that really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, WhatsApp and Instagram are huge to that. 
Yeah, Kurt, and I also wonder too, from a technological perspective, what it would be like to actually break these companies free from Facebook. And the cynic in me says, you know, looks at the news from a couple of years ago, Mark Zuckerberg announcing that WhatsApp and Instagram and Facebook are all going to be more interconnected on the back ends. Does that mean it's going to be more difficult if they were to get that far, regulators that is, to actually break up these companies because they're essentially all working with one another now? I think there's no doubt. Yeah, I think the plan here is to make the messaging services from WhatsApp, Instagram, and Facebook Messenger all work together. And if this is a, a multi-year technical challenge to enable that, I can only imagine that the unwinding of that would be a similarly well, long process. Explain explain what that means. Like if you use Instagram, you can send somebody a message on a different service, right? Exactly. So right now, if you're on Instagram, you can only message people on Instagram and same for WhatsApp and same for Messenger. Eventually, Facebook thinks that if this integration goes through, you'll be able to send messages from Instagram to a WhatsApp user, for example. And what that does is it just expands Facebook's network of messaging services tremendously, right? Because suddenly you only need one of those three services to be able to access anyone on any of them. And so it's a a huge way to expand that group. Um, But again, a lot of technical challenges going into actually enabling that uh, behind the scenes. I wonder too how much of this is like, you know, antitrust and and uh, trade officials here at the in the US government you know not necessarily understanding the social space like i think we're all going to get an education right about the world of social media or we increasingly get so because i do, i'm trying to understand this is kind of a company that was thinking about its future, right? Which it needs to do as a publicly held company and think about the responsibility to shareholders to think about what does a business need to kind of grow into. So, you know, how much of it is that that Facebook was doing versus really trying to kind of own a market? Well, I mean, this is the the same discussion you're going to have around any of these antitrust cases, right? I mean, if, if you are a market leader, are you able to go out and continue to to extend that lead? And I think that's what they did with WhatsApp and Instagram. As Facebook would argue, both of these deals basically went through FTC, uh, not official approval, but there were no flags that were raised at the time, right? So they had a chance to review this, and they they didn't stop it. And Facebook's argument is just because things have gone really well for us since then doesn't mean you can turn back the clock. What do you make of of what Facebook says in response to this, Uh, essentially saying, hey, we compete with Apple, Google, Twitter, Snap, Amazon, TikTok, and Microsoft? I mean, I'm reading right from their statement that they released yesterday when this lawsuit was announced. Do they really compete? Do they really, I mean, do they really have stiff competition? Well, I think it depends on what you uh, are, are, what you're basically talking about in terms of what, what is competing. Like, does Facebook compete for your user attention against dozens of things every day, I'd say the answer is absolutely yes, right? I mean, Netflix is a competitor. You could go watch videos on Facebook or you could go to Netflix or YouTube or or Amazon Prime. Um, Messaging, certainly iMessage is a huge competitor to Facebook in the US. What I think Facebook does that all of those others don't is it really brings all those things into one service and it makes it very hard for you to leave Facebook because uh, you know so many people have a big portion of their life already tied up into the Facebook or Instagram network. And so it, it's not so much that they, mm. they don't compete, it's that none of those other things really offer the full suite of services, I think, that Facebook does really within one company. Is there anything we can compare Facebook in terms of what it's doing to something in the past? Like I was trying to think about, you know, 
the big the big broadcast networks of our past, how they were limited in own and operated stations, right? There was some concerns about having too much influence, right, in our society. Like, is there anything that's similar that this reminds you of? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that that's a, a probably a, a somewhat good example, right, is, is media, media mergers and media conglomerates bringing that together, where I think Facebook kind of separates it's just the global scale at which it, it operates, right? Uh, we have not really had a service that is used in almost every single country in the world um, to the scale that Facebook is used. And so while some of those other examples we've seen have, I think, been very, uh, you know, U.S.-centric, right. um, I think Facebook really provides a more global uh, scale to this than, than we've seen before. Well, and you write in your story that both WhatsApp and uh Instagram are really crucial to their international strategy, which is another one that if you're an investor in that company, right, Tim, that you're, you're like, well, wait a minute, how does this impact their international growth? Yeah, I mean, especially WhatsApp. This is something that Huge. when Facebook bought it years ago, people in the U.S. really weren't familiar with it. It's certainly grown its usage in the U.S., but still outside of the U.S., WhatsApp right? is so huge. Listen, everybody should check out this story. I'll put it out on Twitter because it really does break it down, reputation, demographics. Um, you know, Kurt was breaking it through e-commerce. It really helps you understand how it all kind of fits together. So a really wonderful story. Uh, Again, from Kurt Wagner, Bloomberg Tech Reporter, joining us on the phone in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. We want to get to this week's U.S. cover story. It's remarks. It's about untangling childcare in America. It's written by Cynthia Coons. She's Bloomberg News U.S. healthcare reporter. She reports on how the U.S. childcare crisis, it's torturing parents and the economy. She and Bloomberg Business Week editor Jill Weber joining Bloomberg Quick Take anchor Tim Stenovic and me, Joel in New York, Cynthia on the phone in New Jersey. Joel, this is increasingly an important story, and it really was made even more important by 2020. Oh, and it's a personal one. Yeah. Uh, just <laughs> anybody, who's a, yeah anybody who's a parent just knows what I'm talking about. And, yeah. you know, it's been one of the stories of the pan- pandemic, really. And, um, you know, when Cynthia and the team started talking about it, it you know, we started with this idea of, like, really it's um been a uh, a story about moms of the pandemic you mm-hmm. know that this has been that's been the group that's been just crushed in in september we saw the the workforce numbers and we just saw women leave the workforce right as schools were reopening and kids were staying remote and basically families were forced with this decision of do, does mom keep the job or, or does mom watch the kids? And that has incredible economic implications for the country. And and I, I think as Cynthia is going to talk about, you know, in many ways, this is just a reflection of this longstanding thing that we've known of how broken childcare is in the U.S. compared to other countries. So, Cynthia, dig into this with me as you, as you started reporting this story. You know, what, what did you what did you learn? Well, you know, it's interesting. I thought we were in a child care crisis before COVID. Hmm. So um, what happened during COVID just really underscored all the weakness in our system. And I think the thing is also about what we describe as child care, right? I think most people think of that as zero to five years old. And then after that, you're you're in the system. But you're really not. I, a lot of places that are working on universal child care are also looking at summer care, after care, before care, because even our school system, when it's fully functioning, doesn't match a work day. But like Joel said, there were 865,000 women who left the workforce in September. So it was very clear at that moment in time when schools didn't reopen that this situation was just not tenable anymore. The spring, a lot of people left their jobs partly because their jobs disappeared. But I think by the fall, people were reassessing what they could feasibly do with children at home. And a lot of, for a lot of women, that meant not working. 
And there was also a Lean In and McKinsey study over the summer. And in their study, over a quarter, I think it was a quarter of women, children under age 10 were considering either taking a leave or quitting. So this has been a really big problem for women. And I think what's most interesting is that when you look around the world at wealthy countries, even countries that aren't necessarily as wealthy as our own, there's a lot more money spent on childcare and early education. And so we took this moment to explore what's feasible from a policy perspective. What could the U.S. be doing to maybe come, like, come back with a stronger you know, foundation for working mothers after this crisis subsides? Well, what could we be doing? Because uh, as you write in your story, uh, S&P Global had a report out and they said that the U.S. could add $1.6 trillion to GDP if women entered and stayed in the workforce at a rate similar to how it is in Norway, a country that has government subsidized daycare. So what could the U.S. learn from Norway? So the really interesting thing is, I think there's a perception here that investing in early education and childcare is really expensive. And sure, it is. But as a proportion of GDP, countries like Norway, when you look at the data, so we're investing about 1% of GDP. We do spend money on early education for children of low-income families. But in countries like Norway and Sweden, where they're subsidizing everyone's childcare, they're only spending about 2% of GDP. So it's not as though they're spending some extraordinary proportion of their GDP on this. And one of the interesting things and kind of best practices is making this available to everybody, but also making people pay so that it's not necessarily free for everybody. So if you're at a higher end of the income spectrum, you are paying into the system, but you're still getting something that's equivalent to someone who can't afford to pay for that. That's a leveling factor in some of the research that's come out so far about what universal preschools do. And a lot of the programs going on in the U.S., We've seen cities like Portland just passed the universal pre-K for threes and fours. But it wasn't easy, Cynthia. And there it is, kind of the, you know, liberal bastion of America, I feel like. And yet they had a hard time. Yeah, well, there were multiple groups pushing to get this done. They had different ideas and they they came together in the end. But there was sort of this, you know, split decision about what they wanted to do. And they had different perspectives on it. And there were also attitudes among voters that um, I spoke to one volunteer who encountered volunteers who, I mean, voters who were saying, you know, children should be at home with their parents. But to be fair, in the end, the vote was 64% in favor. So it was pretty substantial. And I think it speaks to something that people said to me was, we should do ballot initiatives, bring this to the people because the people want this. And legislators aren't, legislators may not be getting this done. But here's the thing. Those are threes and fours programs. Very critical for early education, very critical component of childcare, but there's still zero to three. That's the most expensive. And then you still have aftercare, you still have summer. So states like Massachusetts, they're working on something potentially. They're, you know, in early stages trying to get something proposed for this coming legislative session. But what I talked to someone who's working on it, her aim is let's get zero to 13. Let's stop saying it's fine for parents to spend all summer cobbling together care. And like most parents know, you're lucky if you find a camp that's open from nine to four and you're basically scrambling to figure out before care and after care or your kid's school ends at 215. And obviously no one's job accommodates that. So let's think about child care for the whole child and the childhood all the way up to, say, age 13. And that's, you know, some of the thinking that's going on within the United States right now. And, you know, you mentioned it. It's, it seems like it's more on a local level than a federal one. But is there any, any hope that, you know, uh, the incoming Biden administration might try and take a bigger swing at something here? And Cynthia just got about 35 seconds. Yep. So Biden and Harris had this on their platform. They had a $775 billion 10-year plan for universal pre-K for threes and fours. 
Uh, it'll mean a lot to have Senate on their side. I think that's going to be a big contributing factor here. But Congress got behind universal preschool back under Nixon. It was Nixon who vetoed it. So it's definitely possible to get a bipartisan coalition. So, yes, with this administration, we could see change, but it's going to take a lot of ground up work to get there. And it sounds like we need private public partnership. We need maybe governments giving incentives and companies stepping up and doing more plans. I mean, bottom line. Right. Yeah. And companies. Yeah. Yeah. Companies know they need to do that and they're willing. Yeah. That's really positive, too. Great stuff. Great cover story. Great remarks. Uh, Thank you so much. Cynthia Coons, U.S. healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone from New Jersey. Jill Weber, editor at Bloomberg Businessweek. He's at Bloomberg headquarters, but he was catching up with us uh, on one of our access lines here in around our studios. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. And with us, a really cool guest that you brought to our attention. It was a story on the Bloomberg. Eric Jackson. I've been following him on Twitter for years. And it turns out his fund is doing pretty well this year, too, Carol. He's doing really, really well. It's a long, short fund, and he is president of the Toronto-based hedge fund, EMJ Capital. They've got, I think, roughly $77 million, I think, in assets, but we'll double-check with Eric. Uh, he joins us on the phone in Toronto. Eric, how are you? Hey, Carol. Great to be with you. Well, great to have you here with Tim and myself. Um, Tell us a little bit about uh, our team uh, certainly highlighted some of your strategy. Uh, You've definitely been playing some of the names that have really just shot up during the pandemic. Yeah, I definitely have a tech focus. Um, So uh, I have, uh, you know, I I guess I was ahead of the the work from home trend before it became an acronym uh, earlier this year because uh, they're just were a lot of companies that I owned coming into this year that um, were I thought of just as great companies, but um, like for example, Zoom I started hearing about over you know a year ago, and certainly they got a lot of attention uh, when they IPO'd last year. But um, uh, it, it's funny because you know now we hear we hear about Airbnb today or yeah. uh, Snowflake a few months ago, and people are complaining about oh nosebleed value. Same thing about about. Um, Zoom last year when it was like 90 bucks, 80 bucks, and people thought it was outrageous to consider buying Zoom at the time. But, um, you know, my due diligence uh, suggested that it was going to obviously, you know, dominate within the enterprise video conferencing space. I didn't foresee that a global pandemic was on the horizon, but uh, once that started to roll out, um, obviously their TAM, their total addressable market, suddenly mushroomed into, you know, encompassing all these colleges and universities and high schools that started you know, had to immediately figure out a way to get through it. Zoom so, almost 400 um, bucks a share wow. right now as we speak. So yeah. Eric, I'm so, eager to hear what you're looking at now and then sort of how you're thinking about what you see today with Airbnb's IPO, the company's worth $100 billion now. <laughs> I, you know, I love Airbnb. I don't own it. Unfortunately, Tim, I got I got zeroed out, as they say, when, when I put in for my IPO allocation of Airbnb uh, from uh, Morgan Stanley and um, uh, and some of the other underwriters, uh, there was, you know, the biggest, the biggest shops um, on Wall Street were the ones that are kind of first in line for that. Um, but uh, would you have bought I, uh, it? Would you have? Oh, for sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hand over fist. Um, <laughs> 
you know, and we'll, we'll see what happens from here on out. I mean, uh, sometimes these IPOs come out and then they sort of pull back and, you know, I'll be, I'll be looking opportunistically because I, I, I think they dominate the category. They've got, you know, who, who else is going to, you know, Verbo or, you know, is going to unseat them? No, no, they've got huge opportunity in front of them. They've got all this free marketing, for, you know, people like us are giving them on days like today. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think they still have a long runway ahead. You know, don't get caught up in $100 billion yeah. market cap numbers. Hmm. I mean, this is, the opportunity is still much, much larger for them. Hey, did you tap into uh, C3.ai? Uh, I think I'm saying it cor- correctly. Did you, because that also, not getting the attention that DoorDash and Airbnb have gotten, but uh, as our Dave Wilson likes to remind us, it had a really great debut too on Wednesday. Uh, and it was, it continues to just move higher and higher. Uh you know, obviously, you know, no Tom uh, and yeah. uh, know, know a little bit Tom about Siebel. the company, you know, I think, think, you know, highly of them. Not something that I, you know, I have enough on my plate. I, t- I tend to run a more concentrated portfolio of sort of 11 to 20 core names, you know, and I'm, I'm you know, and, and it's always difficult, like giving up one of your, your kids when you have to kind of part ways with one of the, one of the companies in my portfolio to make room for another. But that's not one that I, I you know, I've, I've been looking at the one, you know, probably the two that I'm maybe most excited about going into 2021, um, which who I would highlight with you. Uh, one is Zillow, the online real estate company. And then the second is Match Group, which, of course, controls uh, Tinder. Um, and for both of them, I think, even though they've been public for a long time, they don't get, you know, it's not the sizzle of these new IPOs. Uh, and some people might think, oh, they've been around, you know, why, why should they own the stock now? I, I just think they, they both are category leaders uh, with, again, like huge um, opportunity in front of them for years and years. Uh, and I think they're, you know, they will surprise people with how durable their growth is going to continue to be over the next couple, couple of years. And I just want to mention Zillow's up uh, almost 164% this year. And what I believe bet. Match is up almost 40%. So, yeah, these have been on a run. I mean, how often, how long do you stay with these names? I mean, when do you know to get out at this point? And I'm also curious, are you shorting anything right now? Um, it's, you know, it's, uh, initially when I, when I started EMJ Capital three years ago, my, my thinking was I want to find these, you know, 11 to 20 companies on the long side that I think have a good chance of doubling or tripling um, in the next two or three years. So my, my initial thinking was like, hold these things for two, three years, you're going to get the majority of their growth, you know, within that period. And then, you know, move them out of the portfolio, look for the next generation of, of ones coming in. What I've found, though, and I guess to my surprise, is that sometimes these companies, especially in this kind of sweet spot of, you know, two to, you know, $50 billion in, in market cap, uh, sometimes they can, out, you know, outstrip even your wildest optimistic mm-hmm. uh, expectations. I, I bought Twilio a couple of years ago at 23 bucks in 2018. Um, and held it to 150, wow. and then thought, oh, have, have, I've had a good run, you know, time to get out. Uh, you know, then I thought, you know, power up, and now today it's at 350. Ended up, you know, jumping back into it. Um, so the answer, Carol, is, you know, <laughs> for some of these companies, it'll yeah. be years I'll be owning them. Yeah. Eric, um, I just want to end with asking about what, what you do on Twitter, because you have a prolific following of more than 25,000 people. As I mentioned, that's where I first learned about you. What's your tr- Twitter strategy, very briefly, when it comes to investing? Uh, no, no strategy. You just tweet in terms of, uh, yeah, I mean, just like how you use it to find information, how you use it to find ideas. 
I, I try, you know, obviously you, you try to, you try to follow as, you know, as many people as you can and people with different backgrounds, people, you know, who don't just see the, the, the world through, you know, the, you know, one way, um, technology people, finance people, you know, fintech people, um, you know, non-business people, non-investment people too, um, yeah. you know, try to find a smattering that you like, um, just constantly, you know, listen, you know, listen to, you know, what's getting attention, what people are talking about. You know, I try yeah. to listen. I try to follow my kids and what they're playing, what they're watching, Good. what games they well, like for investment ideas. Well, too. stay in touch, and we will certainly continue to follow you. I'd love to have you back down the road. Eric Jackson, founder and president of EMJ Capital, on the phone from Toronto. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.